Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. It's my great pleasure to introduce Daniel Sheehan tonight, someone who has made a great mark on our society as a, a lawyer and a public advocate, just on so many details, so many different famous issues he was thoroughly involved in. And uh, it's really a great pleasure that you'd come and join us uh, tonight after all that work and all the work that you're working on right now. Let me give you a little bit more detail about his background. Daniel Sheen is one of the most important constitutional attorneys since the 1970s. He has litigated and won historic precedents in cases such as the one making it lawful for unmarried persons to have access to birth control in Massachusetts, the Supreme Court decisions to protect newspaper persons and script writers' privilege to protect their sources from grand jury investigations, the Pentagon Papers case establishing the right of the New York Times to publish the Pentagon Papers, the Watergate burglary case, the Wounded Knee occupation leadership cases, the Karen Silkwood nuclear case that stopped the ordering of all nuclear plants since 1979, the Greensboro justice case against the Ku Klux Klan and the Nazi Party, the first American sanctuary movement criminal defense case, the Iran-Contra-Rico case against 29 people working for Oliver North, and the Chase Iron Eyes legal defense case at Standing Rock against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Just about a history of big issues uh, in America in the last 30, 40 years. Educated at Harvard College, Harvard Law School, and Harvard Divinity School, Daniel has devoted his entire life and his strategic legal abilities to public service in defense of justice and the Constitution. He's been a guest lecturer at Antioch School of Law at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and currently at the University of California at Santa Cruz. He's widely known as a courageous patriot, and the title of his book is The People's Advocate. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, George. Thank you. Thank you for coming out. I, I can't resist opening with a story about Dave Durenberger uh, that uh, Sarah knows was coming. Um, back in 1986, back in 1986, uh, shortly after we had filed the Iran-Contra case, which was the federal criminal racketeering uh, suit we filed against uh, the 29 people that were working with Oliver North, uh, we were out, uh, Sarah and I were out in Minneapolis. We'd been invited by uh, Doug Frazier. And Doug Frazier had been the congressperson from the Minneapolis area for many years. And uh, he had been basically run out of Washington uh, because of his publicly uh, interrogating people from the Central Intelligence Agency uh, during uh, funding hearings about uh, this line item they had in their budget called miscellaneous interrogation equipment. Uh, and he was pressing them on what this was, and they were saying things like, well, you know, chairs and tables and lamps. And and uh, he said, well, what's, what's this item here about uh, thumb screws? Uh, and uh, and uh, everybody just gasped in the room, uh, but it was all the people on the side of the congressman uh, because that's not the kind of thing you're supposed to talk about in an open hearing. Uh, and so Doug Frazier got run out of town, uh, and he had then gone back to Minneapolis and St. Paul, and he'd run for the mayor's office, and he won. And was the mayor. When he found out that we'd filed this Iran-Contra case, uh, he invited us to come out and speak. So we were out there, and we were speaking at the big Unitarian Church in Minneapolis-St. Paul. 
It was on the local uh, television stations. They had the cable television station. We were all there, and we were laying out information uh, about this case. Uh, this is despite the fact that the federal judge, uh, James Lawrence King, uh, who had taken the case, had ordered us to remain silent about even the existence of the case. But we were telling people about it at any event, uh, and we were handing out literature about it, uh, some like the literature that we have here, I think. Uh, and uh, this one young man that was in the audience uh, took some of this literature, and he was flying back to Washington, D.C., as it turns out, the next morning, and he was on the airplane, uh, and he gets into the airplane, and he's walking through first class, and there's David Durnberger, the uh, local congressman, senator, actually. Uh, and so he sees him sitting there, and uh, during the flight, uh, the young man gets up and comes out into first class and says, uh, Senator Durnberger, I'm really sorry. I don't mean to disturb you or anything. I know it's people hassle you all the time, but here's some literature I just got uh, all about this lawsuit that's been filed, and it's got all this information in it. I'd like to have you read it. And then he leaves. Uh, well, Sarah and I flew back into Washington, uh, and uh, the following Monday morning, uh, we start getting all these calls at our office. Uh, did you hear what happened? Did you hear what happened over at the Senate? You know, David Durnberger got up on the floor of the Senate and demanded that there be a congressional investigation about this uh, off-the-shelf enterprise, uh, shipping weapons to the Contras and smuggling cocaine back into the United States, you know, all in violation of the Boland Amendment that had been passed. And uh, and so we said, no, wow, we didn't know how that happened or anything, right? And so that was Monday morning. Goes during the through the week and uh, Sunday morning, Sarah and I were uh, we just been over to mass at the big National Catholic Cathedral that we lived right next door to in Washington D.C. and we we're sitting back at the house and we were reading the New York Times and you know the Washington Post and it was lying all around the floor reading and we get this telephone call uh, and it turns out that it's Jonathan Beatty. Jonathan Beatty was the Time Magazine reporter that broke all the stories on the BCCI. The, the the Bank of Commerce that was the big criminal bank that was in Pakistan. Uh, and he calls, he said, Danny, this is uh, this is Jonathan. Uh, uh, I've got to come over and talk to you right away. I'm sorry to bother you on Sunday morning, but I've got to come tell you. And so I said, sure, come on over. So within the hour, he's standing on our front porch in his rain jack, raincoat. It was raining like mad out. Uh, he hadn't shaved or showered or anything. He was standing on the porch. So we let him in. He said, look, he said, uh, I live uh, two doors down from David Durnberger uh, out in Virginia. Uh, and about two o'clock this morning, uh, his wife comes running uh, up onto our front porch, hollering, pounding on our door and screaming. And uh, we went to the door and opened the door and let her in. And he said, these three Hispanic speaking men uh, broke into her home and dragged her out of bed in her nightgown and threw her on the floor and put a gun in her mouth and told her if she if if David didn't withdraw his request for this investigation, they would come back and kill her and the whole family. Uh, he said, I had to come tell you this, he said, because, I, you know, that nobody's going to write about this. And so he told us. So the next morning, that was Sunday morning, the next morning, Monday, one week from when we first started, that we get the word. David Durnberg gets up on the floor uh, and says he's going to withdraw his request for this investigation because uh, Bud McFarland had given him a personal call and given him his word that there was nothing to this. There was nothing to any of these charges about there being this off-the-shelf enterprise. And David Durnberger said, well, that was good enough for him. 
and he was withdrawing his request. Uh, in the Wednesday, following Wednesday, two days later, front page story on the Washington Times, the big Mooney newspaper in Washington, D.C., big front page picture of, uh, of uh, a bungalow uh, apartment like where David Durenberger had his mistress. Uh, and here was the picture of her mistress. Here was the picture of the place where they were. And the, right on the front page of the, of the Washington Times. Uh, and then Friday morning, a big front page story about how Dave Durenberger had uh, decided that he was, because he was an alcoholic, uh, he was going to go into treatment now uh, out at the Cedars, this hardcore right-wing Christian fundamentalist uh, alcohol rehabilitation center outside Washington, D.C. And that was the end of his career. And, uh, and that, that is how, uh, what's his head, uh, got elected. Uh, who's the young, the young fellow? Paul, Paul Wellstone. Paul Wellstone had been running against him. He got the Democratic nomination because that was worth about a nickel and a cup of coffee. You know, running, running against Nuremberger. And, and Wellstone was going around this little Volkswagen bus. He was an assistant professor and he was talking to everybody going door to door. And when Nuremberger, when this happened to Nuremberger, uh, his, his career collapsed and, uh, and Wellstone, uh, got elected. And they tell the story when Wellstone showed up, uh, the new senators were all being introduced to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, George Bush Sr., the president. And they're all getting this receiving line, and they come through the line, and and uh, and Paul Wellstone, when he gets to him, he shakes his hand and hands him a bunch of literature from the Christic Institute uh, on the Iran Contra case, and hands it to him. And and George Bush shakes his hand, and when he goes away, he turns around and says, "Who was that little prick?" He says, <laughs> so. So anyway, that was that was our time in Washington. We spent 20 years there, uh, Sarah and I, and our whole staff. Uh, we had a staff of 55 people. Working full time at the Christic Institute, Sarah and I and Father Bill Davis uh, set up the the Christic Institute. Uh, I was general counsel for the United States Jesuit headquarters in Washington D.C. Uh, Sarah was the national labor secretary for the National Organization for Women, uh, and the uh, the people in now were looking for uh, an attorney to represent the family of Karen Silkwood, who'd been killed uh, on her way to deliver uh, secret documents from the Kerr-McGee nuclear facility files to David Burnham from the New York Times. And uh, <clears throat> they, wanted to, they wanted to have a lawyer, and so they, they came and uh, asked me if I would do it. Uh, and so I went and met Sarah, and sure, I would agree to do it. Uh, and that's how it started. And we now have two children, been at this, at this for 40 years uh, together. Uh, and, uh, I just, we just got back in, uh, late last night, as in midnight last night from Washington, D.C. We've just spent a full week in Washington going around meeting with all the new generation of people that are there now running the major 54 major religious denominations offices in Washington, D.C. They have these legislative monitoring offices there. Uh, and so we went and, and met them all, the brand new head of the Jesuit National Social Ministry Office, uh, Ted Pinton. He just came on board, just got ordained and became the director of social ministry. We went and met the new head, uh, the person over at the United States Catholic Conference of Bishops. Uh, met the, the people that were head of the National Council of Churches. Uh, we just talked to the Friends Committee, you know, all of them trying to get everybody online now to become working together on the Green New Deal, 
uh, to deal with global climate change. Uh, I'll, I'll touch on that in my comments, but uh, it was just, just I, I noticed when we got back, I just received my first uh, solicitation from Harvard Law School for our 50th reunion. I thought they must have sent it to me by accident because I'm way too young to have that. But it, but it turns out that we're going to have our 50th reunion now in 2020. We graduated in 1970. And I was reflecting on my uh, first 50 years in legal practice uh, now uh, in preparation for the, the talk tonight. And uh, I remember that I was the last all-male class. Uh, in the history of Harvard College, 350 years of all-male classes. In 1967, I graduated. Uh, I was the last one to take Gov 180 from Henry Kissinger, uh, American Foreign Policy at Harvard College. It was the first uh, class of Larry Tribe, Professor Lawrence Tribe, the, the premier American constitutional scholar uh, now, uh, and, and in 1968, uh, founded the Harvard Civil Rights Law Review, along with Mark Green, who went on to become the, the, uh, the ombudsman for the city of New York. And so the, in our first year at the, at the review, we initiated the case that, that, uh, that George commented on that uh, ended up generating the right of journalists to protect our confidential news sources. We represented an NBC television cameraman, uh, who had who had agreed to interview members of the Black Panther Party out in New Haven uh, and maintain secrecy over what he had been gathering. He got subpoenaed by a grand jury uh, out there, and we came in to represent him off the law review. Uh, and the case went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, and because of that, the, uh, the uh, Wall Street law firm that represented the uh, NBC uh, came to the came to Harvard Law School to interview me because uh, they had originally refused to argue that there was a, a right a First Amendment right to protect your news sources that there was no such right there were no precedents to, to that effect uh, they advised him that he couldn't uh, protect it he had to go and and give over all of his outtakes from his video interviews to the to the grand jury so he uh, he in fact ended up calling us eventually through John Flynn, this other young lawyer in town. Uh, and so we represented him. Uh, and when Cahill decided they were going to come and represent him, they said, okay, now that it's in the United States Supreme Court, uh, we'll come on and represent you. And he said, no, thank you. Uh, why would I have lawyers representing me who didn't believe that the right even existed to begin with? So that's how I got recruited uh, to be at the number one litigation law firm in, in the world down at uh, on Wall Street at Cahill Gordon. Uh, and that's why I was there when the Pentagon Papers case came in, because uh, in addition to writing the main briefs on the right of journalists to protect their confidential news sources, I was writing all the amicus briefs for uh, ABC and CBS, the New York Times, Washington Post, etc. Uh, and I got to know uh, Jim Goodell. And Jim Goodell was the vice president and general counsel for the New York Times. So when they got the 47 volumes uh, of the classified internal uh, Pentagon study uh, on, the, on the origins of the Vietnam War, uh, their law firm, Lord Day and Lord, uh, refused to represent them. Uh, in fact, threatened to turn them into the FBI if they didn't give the documents back immediately. And so Jim Goodell called me. About 7.30 one morning uh, in June uh, now, uh, in 1971, uh, <clears throat> and said, uh, 
Danny, he said, I'm glad to see you're there in the office so nice and early. He said, uh, uh, I'd like to come on over and talk to you about something. We've got some uh, issue I want to talk about. So I said, should I get Floyd Abrams? Should I bring in Floyd Abrams? And he said, yes, see if you can get Floyd. And so I got Floyd and Gene Scheiman, uh, my partner at the, at the law firm. So we came in, and, and June Goodell comes on over about 8.30 in the morning, comes walking in and uh, introduces himself again. He knew Floyd, and he sits down, and he and Floyd are talking about their wives and how nice, how the walls are straight up and down today. And going, and I, was, I was sitting there going, wait a second now, uh, Jim, you just asked us to come on over early to talk about something. And so he gets up and goes and closes the door and says, uh, We've come into possession of 47 volumes of top-secret classified cable traffic and internal memos uh, revealing all of the lies and deceptions that were going on in the Vietnam War, uh, including a demonstration that the Bay of Tonkin uh, that Lyndon Johnson used to justify sending in eventually 500,000 troops uh, into, into Vietnam was, in fact, a total fabrication. Uh, and uh, uh, Lord Dan Lord tells us that they're going to uh, turn us into the FBI if we don't give them back. Uh, so what should we do? I said, being a first-year associate, uh, I said, uh, print them, <clears throat> print them. I said, the only thing you should really be having any doubt about is the size of the font to actually put on the front page of the New York Times, I said. And, uh, and Floyd said, wait, wait a second, wait a second, that's not, that's not an opinion of the firm here. And uh, and so so Jim Goodell looks over at me and he kind of shuffles his chair over toward me where I was sitting over there and he says really he says uh, if we if we publish them what do you think they'll do and I said well I mean knowing old Meathead Mitchell uh, it was John Mitchell was the Attorney General that's how we all, we talked about it very respectfully uh, that uh, old Meathead I said Mitchell who's a bond lawyer I said you know who thinks the Constitution is a ship that sits in the harbor in Boston I said uh, he'll he'll probably threaten you guys he'll probably threaten you and Punch Sulzberger and Neil Sheehan the author and, uh, and he said threaten us with what and I said well if we're lucky espionage and he said espionage, and he pulls his chair all the way back across the room over by Floyd. I said, yes, yes. I said, but look at U.S. v. Gorin. U.S. v. Gorin is the old 1947 case that requires scienter. You can't just, you know, sue, you can't just prosecute somebody under espionage. Uh, you know, they have to have intentional will to intentionally reveal the information for the specific purpose of damaging the United States to the advantage of a foreign adversary. And uh, I said, so they, they can't do that, so let's just get to it and let's publish these things. And so we did, uh, and went on, went on for 13 days, uh, and we, uh, we published them. We established the, the right of the New York Times to publish the, the Pentagon Papers, the classified information. It stands even today, as you know, as the hallmark case uh, that defines the right of journalists to actually reveal this stuff. Uh, and, and, of course, the Julian Assange case is coming up uh, where that issue is going to be revisited by the administration that we have here now uh and uh and so that so we're receiving some calls from people who are friends of assange uh wondering whether we'll be willing to represent him uh on this as someone who truly believes uh in the right of the journalist to reveal information like this 
Uh, and so that, that, that was the beginning of, of my career, uh, back then, uh, in that, that year, it was 1970. Uh, and then 1971, we had the Pentagon Papers case. I also was at Attica Prison the night everybody was killed there. I got a call from, uh, Bill Kunzler, uh, in, in mid, early June, actually, of, of 71, before the Pentagon Papers thing started. And got asked to go up to uh, Attica Prison, uh, where the other, the inmates had taken control of Attica Prison, uh, and were holding 41, uh, people hostage, uh, and uh, they wanted to have a non-lawyers guild lawyer come up to argue the case in front of Judge Tom Curtin to allow lawyers into the prison to try to stop an attack on the prison by the New York State Police that was getting organized. And so we mounted up, and I went up and uh, argued the case in front of Judge Curtin. Uh, he was going. He said he'd take it under advisement. Uh, I said, you need, to, you need to rule on it now because we think they're getting ready to attack the prison probably tonight. Uh, and he said, well, I'll take it under advisement. I think as long as I've got the case under advisement, I don't think they're going to really do anything like that. Uh, and so he didn't rule on it then. <clears throat> so we went back to uh, where we were staying at the University of Buffalo on the campus and started getting emergency calls that the, the, uh, the state police were on the move and were getting set to attack the prison. So we went out to uh, Judge, uh, Judge Tom Curtin's home. I got him out of bed and had this intense discussion in his kitchen, in his bathroom <laughs> at his kitchen table, you know, trying to get him to agree to sign the order to let us go out. And we were listening to the radio all the time, the bulletins coming in, uh, and they attacked the prison while we were right in the kitchen with, with Judge Curtin. And so he signed an order. Uh, we modified it to send in lawyers and doctors. And we had like about 20 doctors all standing by. And, and so we piled into these Volkswagen buses and we went out onto the New York State Thruway, which was all completely shut down. Uh, the National Guard had been all called out. They were mobilized all up and down the, the highway. And we had the federal court order in hand. So we got through the barricades and we're out onto the uh, onto the highway. And we went out there and basically uh, the uh, the coroner, New York State coroner, had issued a, uh, a an official coroner's report saying that all 41 of the hostages had been killed by having their throats cut by the inmates. Uh, we encircled the, the prison and put the lawyers at the, each of the gates of the prison and the, the doors uh, and, uh, and, and, and laid siege to the place, and uh, they couldn't get the bodies out of there without our seeing them. And so the coroner at uh, O'Don 30 in the morning issued a formal uh, reversal and acknowledged that all 41 of the hostages had been killed by double buckshot fire by the police firing down into the yard and killing them all. And uh, this was this was my first month or so at the firm uh, of Cahill. Uh, the, the partners are getting a little bit distressed now. Uh, and uh, and so then I got asked to go over and uh, and be one of the lawyers for the Panther 21, the uh, the top 21 leaders of the Black Panther Party in New York City, who've been rounded up and arrested and charged with 157 separate uh, felony counts. I was one of the young lawyers that helped uh, defend them in that case, had a minimal role in it. But uh, when we got done with, with the trial, after an 18-week trial, it took the jury 37 minutes uh, to come in with 157 innocent verdicts. 
and the uh, the uh, the judge uh, Judge Murtaugh started pounding started pounding his gavel to silence everybody in the courtroom, saying, "There's no such thing as an innocent verdict. Uh, there's either guilty or not guilty." You go back in that courtroom, you come out with a verdict of either guilty or not guilty. They went in their room, and they came out five minutes later with 157 innocent verdicts. Uh, and the whole courtroom explodes and jumps up and down. And uh, uh, I was I was uh, outside, and I remember, uh, who was it, from uh, Howard K. Smith. Some people, the old white hairs will remember him. Howard K. Smith from ABC uh, interviews me, and he says, well, Mr. Sheehan, he says, uh, there, see, they were all acquitted. Doesn't that prove that the system really works? I said, yeah, they've been in prison for 18 months already. Uh, took a jury, you know, f- five minutes, basically, to acquit them all and find them innocent in defiance of the judge. Uh, and so the firm was now getting more distressed uh, that I was there. And I kept saying, look, I'm not mentioning the firm at all, you know, when any of these cases are going on. And I had an agreement with them. I had them a little bit over the barrel because the the NBC television reporter wouldn't allow them to represent him unless I was in the firm. So I had, I had extracted this deal so I could spend half of my time doing public interest cases and the other half doing their cases, uh, the other half of which included the Pentagon Papers case because we took the New York Times account away from Lord Day and Lord. So I got to represent the New York Times uh, and got to do all these other cases. Uh, until they finally decided that when I refused to uh, help them get an injunction to uh, keep the people from Operation uh, Breadbasket with Jesse Jackson and the people that were challenging A&P, the great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, that were engaged in racially discriminatory pricing uh, in all the ghetto areas, charging 20% more for everything just because they knew the people couldn't engage in comparative shopping because they didn't have the kind of transportation necessary. And I refused to represent them. Uh, and so they thought I'd be happier elsewhere. Uh, I, I told them I was fine. I was, I was having a good time. I, uh, and so I just stayed there until they finally uh, had an associate call me in and uh, tell, them, tell me that uh, I'd been terminated. And I said, terminated? Is that like in the mob or something? Like I get terminated or, uh, or is it like fired? Oh, no, no, we don't fire people at, uh, at Cahill. We just uh, terminate you. The, the, the executive committee has met, and they've uh, come to the decision that uh, your interests and the interests of their clients are not the same. Uh, and so I left the office and uh, actually became the, uh, the campaign chairman for George McGovern, uh, in the 14th Congressional District, where uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has uh, just uh, won the seat uh, there from the old-line Democrat. Uh, and so I ran his campaign and then got recruited by F. Lee Bailey, uh, the criminal defense attorney in Boston. And I went to Bailey's office and uh, ended up on the Watergate burglary case that uh, their office was representing James McCord, who uh, was the wiretap specialist in the Central Intelligence Agency that wired up the office of uh, Larry O'Brien. And so we represented him and uh, got him to write the letter to Judge Sirica, blowing the whistle on Richard Nixon uh, and the, the plumbers, the plumbers unit, the White House plumbers. So that, that drove me back to divinity school. Uh, I, I was... Was having this having a problem with these senior partners in these firms, they didn't quite seem to believe that they were supposed to be crusading, crusading on behalf of justice, you know. And uh, Bailey, and I kept having all these big long uh, confrontations uh, about this, and so 
I had uh, I'd had this big run-in with him uh, about uh, I, I'd been asked to go out to Wounded Knee that uh, old, one of my classmates at Harvard Law School had been legal counsel for ACLU Rocky Mountain Regional and when the occupation took place at Wounded Knee, right, uh, the American Indian Movement, and uh, he'd never been in court yet. So he called me desperately to ask me to come out and help him, and so I took two weeks off from Bailey's firm and went out and for ACLU helped write the amicus briefs uh, to demand the dismissal of all the charges against the American Indian Movement leadership, Russell Means and uh, the Bellacourt brothers and, uh, and others, uh, and we won. Um, and, uh, so I ended up, uh, long story, ended up going back to Harvard to do a, a master's, uh, and then a PhD on Judeo-Christian social ethics, attempting to try to compare and contrast the ethical system that most of the people in the United States have been raised with in parallel to, you know, eat your neighbor. Uh, you know, the, the two kind of major uh, parallel value systems that we're raised with, the you know, playing football and being cheerleaders to, you know, scream and holler at the town next to you because they're playing you in basketball or football and you have to hate them and the girls can't go out with their ball club and et cetera, you know. Uh, at the same time, you go to church and, and synagogue and stuff and you're supposed to love everybody. So I said, this is, this is confusing. Uh, so I think I need to get a little more, uh, a little more study in here. So I went and, and did that and got recruited to become chief counsel for the United States Jesuit Order. Uh, and went down to Washington, D.C. to their big national headquarters uh, and uh, got to actually help run with Father Bill Davis, uh, who was my superior. I was a candidate for the Jesuit priesthood, uh, and he was my, my superior. And it was a good kind of guy to have as your superior because he drove the cars for the Berrigan brothers uh, when they were when they were uh, Dan and Phil Berrigan and Liz McAllister and the other nuns and, and priests that would go around uh, going into draft boards and uh, pouring their blood on the files of the draft boards uh, during the Vietnam War, et cetera. Uh, and so that uh, Bill Davis was their driver. He would drive them up and drive them away from the scene and all that. So he was a pretty easy guy to get along with. Uh, so I, I stayed there for 10 years uh, as a candidate for the Jesuit order and uh, helped run the, the Jesuit uh, social ministry office. And we began to do a series of cases. And uh, one of the first ones was Sarah. Sarah had asked us to do the, the Karen Silkwood case. We did that case that you, many of you may have seen the movie with Merle Streep and, uh, and Kurt Russell and Cher and the, Mike Nichols directed about what happened to Karen Silkwood. Uh, well, we, we came on right after the final scene in the movie, uh, but in real life, where, where uh, she ends up getting killed, run off the road, uh, killed, and uh, all the documents were taken out of her car. Uh, her body disappears for 48 hours. Nobody can find it. Uh, her body shows up at the uh, uh, Oklahoma City uh, morgue, uh, a Jane Doe tag on her, on her toe, all of her internal organs missing, brain, internal, all of her soft tissues m- missing, uh, and uh, uh, and nobody could figure out what was going on. And so the family ended up uh, deciding to file a lawsuit uh, in the National Organization for Women, organized people all around the country, uh, and uh, we waited in to uh, be the lawyers in the case, did the investigation, uh, won a $10.5 million judgment against the Kerr-McGee Corporation, the largest judgment, civil judgment in history uh, up to that point in time. 
and stop the construction of all private nuclear power plants in the country because it broke the bank uh, for them uh, and no, they couldn't get any insurance. And no, no nuclear power plants, no new ones could get any insurance after that. And so that from that point to this point, none of them have been ordered. So that, that's the, the nature of what it is that uh, led us to set up the Christic Institute that uh, Sarah and Father Bill Davis and I set up a, a standalone 501c3 public interest uh, law firm. Uh, we had professional investigators. We had grassroots organizers. We had public education people. We had a whole development office. Uh, we had interns from law schools and universities around. Uh, we, had, we were given a, an old uh, cobbler shop. Uh, at the at the foot of Capitol Hill, uh, where we we held forth from there, uh, and that's that's how we uh, got established the Christic Institute. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. While we were doing the first American sanctuary movement, uh, criminal defense down in Texas, that uh, that we ended up winning that case. But during the course of it, we uncovered the weapons supply operations to the Contras. Uh, in violation of the Boland Amendment that had been passed by Congress prohibiting the Reagan-Bush administration from providing any aid, either direct or indirect, to the Contras because they'd been uh, found by the International Court of Justice to be international outlaws for mining the harbors in Nicaragua in violation of international law. Uh, and so we we did that major uh, case, brought it against 29 people, uh, basically had them against the ropes. We had information pouring in from everywhere uh, about what they were doing. Uh, we had a former uh, U.S. Army CID guys, uh, the head of all Army CID, uh, Criminal Investigating Division in Asia, working with us. We had the uh, the uh, chief of security of the U.S. military mission in Tehran working with us. We had the uh, chief of CID for the United States Marine Corps in Vietnam. <clears throat> they all... They all longed to be good guys. They'd all started their careers uh, thinking that they were being good guys, that they were there to help people. You know, they used to go to the movies uh, and see heroes uh, in the movies. And they discovered uh, as young baby boomers that when you get out into the outside world, it turned out not to be entirely true. Uh, that the United States government operations that they were working for, uh, the military in Vietnam, uh, the you know, energy plants, the private corporations and companies, it turns out that they were engaged in a, the pursuit of an entirely different set uh, of values and a different agenda. And they became disillusioned uh, over the years. And so they, they found great solace uh, in actually having a place where they could be good guys and they could come and help us and they could apply their skills and training to actually help us. And that's how, that's how we got operating uh, at the Christic Institute. And we did a whole number of those cases. And uh, finally, uh, George uh, Bush Sr. Uh, pardoned 
the first six people that we got indicted uh, by Special Prosecutor Lawrence Walsh. Uh, he he uh, pardoned them all at the at the direction, I, I might add, of William Barr. Uh, William Barr was the attorney general for George Bush Sr. And uh, William Barr advised him that he should pardon all these people that got indicted so they wouldn't talk about George Bush Sr. Because it was perfectly evident that all the evidence showed that George Bush Sr. and his national security advisor, his vice presidential national security advisor, Donald P. Gregg, were supervising the entire weapons operation uh, and were perfectly knowledgeable about the smuggling of massive amounts of cocaine into the United States, a huge political assassination operation going on run by a guy named Theodore Shackley, who was handpicked by George Bush Sr., to be the uh, the director of covert operations for the CIA. All that stuff is true. Uh, and uh, when he pardoned uh, the first six people indicted, uh, he ordered the Internal Revenue Service uh, to yank our 501c3 tax-exempt charter on the grounds that uh, since no one had been ultimately criminally convicted uh, and that the charges we were making, even though civil, uh, were in effect criminal in nature, and because no one had been ultimately criminally convicted, because he pardoned them, uh, that we must have been motivated strictly by politics, and therefore he ordered them to yank our 501c3. So uh, they did, uh, and when the word went out that uh, he had, they had yanked our 501c3, a group called the Romero Foundation uh, out in California here, uh, that had been involved in providing humanitarian assistance to people in Nicaragua and Central America against the death squads, uh, called a meeting and elected me to be their president and general counsel, uh, Sarah to be the vice president and uh, executive director, and Father Bill Davis to be the secretary treasurer. And then they all, then they all resigned. Uh, so we were back at it um, without too much of a delay. Uh, and Sarah ended up, um, it's a long and interesting story, but at the Jesuit headquarters, one of my deputies who was in charge of nuclear weapons policy, Dr. James Garrison, uh, we ended up sending to Russia that we were planning on getting the 54 major religious denominations to put pressure on to have the United States unilaterally cut back on 10% of our nuclear warheads and that we needed to have the Soviet Union respond in kind so that we could start a process of a 10% exchange of reduction in nuclear warheads rather than the SALT talks at that time, the strategic arms limitation talks, which were nothing more than having the Soviet Union and the United States each agree to build fewer more than they were going to uh, the next year. (laughs) That was going in the wrong direction. So we decided we should try to intervene in this and get the top 54 major religious denominations to to get us to take a unilateral step ahead to reduce our, our arsenal by 10%. Uh, and then we need to have the Soviet Union respond. So uh, Jim Garrison went to Russia originally under Brezhnev. Uh, and uh, then later when, when he passed away uh, and was going to be meeting with Andropov, and he was having a set of meetings uh, with Shevanazzi to determine how to get a meeting set up with Andropov so they could do this. And uh, Shevanazzi said, no, 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 it's not Andropov. Andropov will not be with us long. He said, uh, you want to talk to Gorbachev. 
Gorbachev is the Secretary of Agriculture, but he is KGB. He is the protege to Andropov, and he's the one you want to talk to. So Jimmy went and met with with uh, Gorbachev, told him what we wanted to do, and Gorbachev said, the United States will never do that. They will not cut back on their nuclear warheads uh, because they believe they need them. Not, not against us. China. He said, China. He said, China showed them in, in Korea that they could put a million men in the field against you in a traditional war uh, and just overwhelm you. And that they believe they need to have the nuclear weapons to deal with China. So I'll have to take that step myself when I become president. And uh, I will undertake to do this. And he started this thing called uh, uh, Glashnost and Perestroika. Uh, and he said, but they will come for me in the night when I start this process. And so you, Jim Garrison, will have to become the head of the Gorbachev Foundation and carry on our work to eliminate the nuclear weapons. And that's how Jimmy Garrison, one of my best friends from Harvard Divinity School and my staff guy at Jesuit headquarters, became the president of the Gorbachev Foundation. And that's how Sarah Nelson became the director, uh, the executive director of the State of the World Forum uh, that Gorbachev set up at the end of the Cold War. Uh, working on trying to establish some sort of a new planetary regime at the end of the Cold War before the United States basically found some new ultimate other uh, to to justify a $700 billion a year military budget. Uh, and so we, we were all working away at that until 9-11, uh, and, uh, and as we all know, uh, with 9-11, it dropped back into the same dialectic. Uh, but the, in fact, it had fallen into that prior to that time. Uh, and we have limited time, but I, I should tell you at least a few things that, that you'll never going to hear anywhere else uh, and make it worthwhile. So I may get invited back to tell some more, more of these stories. But the, the, what happened is, is uh, immediately after uh, Gorbachev, uh, signed the uh, decree releasing all of the republics of the Soviet uh, Socialist Republics. Uh, uh, there was a meeting the following Monday morning, actually, in Washington, D.C., in the West Wing. Uh, and it was, uh, it was chaired uh, by uh, Paul Wolfowitz. Paul Wolfowitz was the Deputy uh, Secretary of Defense under Dick Cheney. It's important to remember Dick Cheney was the Secretary of Defense under George Bush Sr., and Wolfowitz convenes this meeting, and he's got David Addington there, Doug Fife, uh, Elliot Abrams, uh, and, uh, and uh, others. And they all drafted up the 1992 United States Defense Department Policy Planning Guidance Document. Uh, and this was a major document, classified, highly classified document, saying, look, now that the Soviet Union has voluntarily dissolved, we are the sole remaining superpower on the planet. And we need to take advantage of this moment. There's going to be a huge push now to for us to cut back on our military budget because we've been for the last 70 years justifying this massive military budget under the theory that the Soviet Union is wanting to take over the whole world and we have to stop them. Uh, and now that they've stepped back from this, uh, people are going to want to cut back on the military budget. We have to increase the military budget because now that we have this opportunity, we can, in fact, establish full-spectrum dominance over the planet. We can assert our military might to, is a superior of any other foreign f power or foreign actor, and this needs to be our objective. 
and that the purpose of this will be to maintain our continued privileged access to the strategic raw materials needed by our major American corporations. Okay? And it says it just like that. You know, unvarnished, let's do it. Uh, and they ended up circulating this draft in April of 1992 to a select number of people in the cabinet of Bush Sr.'s cabinet and a select number of generals at the Pentagon. Somebody leaked a copy of it to the Washington Post. Washington Post writes this scathing editorial against it, uh, characterizing it as gunboat diplomacy and a return to the age of the robber barons. Not coincidentally, uh, because that's exactly what it was. Because what this was is that it was the, the robber baron era that was underway from the end of the American Civil War in 1868 all the way to 1898 with the election, with the election of, uh, of McKinley. Uh, you know, that, that was the epitome of the, the kind of rise to power of the American corporation. This is when they created the American corporation for the first time, the shareholder-owned stock corporation. Uh, corporations prior to that time were just things created by the government for a limited purpose, to build a canal, to build a turnpike, to do something like that, uh, and then they would dissolve. And so they were temporary. But what they did is they created an idea of having uh, the, the owners of the assets of a company, the corporation, uh, be owned by the stockholders, uh, but the stockholders were completely immunized against any personal liability. And the management were immunized against any personal liability. The corporation would be liable. Uh, so its resources were liable under the civil tort laws. Okay. But, but what happened is it, it unleashed a, a huge period in American history where, uh, where very powerful people could put their money into buying shares of stock in various companies going on their boards of directors, being immunized themselves, and then formed these interlocking directorates. And they all formed uh, these uh, private investment groups, one of which was Brown Brothers Harriman. Brown Brothers Harriman was a major private investment group in New York City, and almost all of the major robber barons belonged to it. You know, that uh, uh, the, the uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, Rockefellers, uh, you know, the Vanderbilts, uh, virtually all of them, the DuPonts, they belong to this private investment group. The CEO of this investment group uh, eventually came to be George Herbert Walker. George Herbert Walker, the name sounds familiar uh, because it is the grandfather of George Herbert Walker Bush. And he was the CEO of this operation. Uh, his son-in-law, uh, his son-in-law, uh, Prescott Bush, uh, was his deputy. And in 1924, uh, in 1924, George Herbert Walker stepped out of being the CEO of Brown Brothers Harriman and set up a thing called the Union Bank of New York. And the Union Bank of New York was financed, capitalized by people who were in the private investment firm of Brown Brothers Harriman. And they invested their money in the bank. They set up a subsidiary in Holland called the Bank of Commerce and Credit, uh, Commerce and Shipping. Uh, and this guy, Fritz Theiss, uh, ran that, Fritz Theissen. They funded the rise of the Third Reich in Germany. They funded the, the construction of the major fascist headquarters, uh, international headquarters for the Third Reich. Uh, they funded the rise of Hitler as the bulwark against Bolshevism. That was the entire purpose of this. Uh, and this, uh, the, the reason that I, I say this is so, I, I do this digression 
is because this return to the age of the robber baron era is exactly what happened at the end of the Cold War. As soon as the Soviet Union withdrew from this dialectical confrontation with the West, what happened is that those who had been engaged in the robber baron era in promoting this idea of manifest destiny, the white man's burden, etc., they stepped to the fore again in the form of these people that were inside the Defense Department under Dick Cheney. Uh, and they all organized, uh, and they put forth this draft of a a new uh, plan for our Defense Department to establish full-spectrum dominance over the world on behalf of our corporations. What happened is when the, the editorials were written against it, George Bush Sr., as the president, broke precedent and made a comment about a classified paper like that. He said, we don't usually talk about classified papers, and I'm not even going to admit that we have one like this. But even if we did, it'd only be a draft, uh, and there may be later iterations of this. And there was. Uh, a second draft of the 1992 United States Defense Department Policy Planning Guidance Document, it was, it was co-authored by George Bush Sr. and Theodore Shackley the man who he was handpicked as his CIA covert operations director, who had been the protege to Reinhard Galen, who was the Third Reich's anti-Soviet and anti-Eastern Bloc intelligence chief. And uh, Theodore Shackley was the guy who became the head of CIA in Saigon. He's the guy that set up the agreements with uh, Vang Pao to smuggle the opium out of Southeast Asia to fund the Phoenix program, the massive assassination program there. This is one of the most evil people that you're ever going to run across. And he was the one who co-authored this along with George Bush Sr. Uh, and, it's will all break your heart, Colin Powell. And the three of the, the three of them uh, co-authored the second iteration of this draft, and they said, "Let's do the same thing that they were talking about in the first draft, but let's not do it unilaterally. It's not to be done just on behalf of the United States. What we're going to do is reach out and we're going to establish a new alliance. This alliance is going to include the United States, and we've got the document. We've got the copy of the second draft of this, and it says, "The United States, Canada." Mexico, not the Mexican indigenous people, but the PRI, the PRI, the big party in Mexico that represents the Castilian Spanish, the UK, Spain, France, Italy, the new reunified Germany, and Russia, if they choose to join, now that they have spun off all of their ethnic provinces. That's what it says. And it says that the purpose of this new alliance will be to maintain the continued privileged access to the strategic raw materials needed by members of the new Northern Industrial Alliance. That's the, that's the key. That's, that's George Bush Sr. That was the plan uh, to do this on a, on a multilateral grounds. And in case you hadn't noticed, these are all Caucasian nations. Uh, and that the plan was to establish this new Northern Industrial Alliance. That's the bottom line on the outreach to Russia. And that's why, as you see going on now, is the attempt on the part of, of Trump to have control over all the oil and the resources. That what they want to do is they want to have control over the North American access to oil and natural gas, and they want Russia involved under the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea. And it turns out that uh, Rosneft, which is the Russian National Oil Corporation, uh, Rojnev actually has access to now not only the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea, but the Arctic Shelf. 
now that the ice is melting off, and there are projected to be some 87 billion barrels of oil under the Arctic shelf, and 30% of all of the natural gas on the planet, uh, and it's worth $10 trillion. And this is this is the part that isn't being investigated, wasn't investigated by the special prosecutor. This is that uh, Mueller did not investigate this. But the fact of the matter is there's direct evidence of meetings going on uh, between people in the staff of the of the Trump campaign and a man by the name of Igor Sechin. Igor Sechin is the CEO of Rosneft. And there were discussions going on about having a 19.5% sale of 19.5% of, of the Russian oil company that was going to be sold, and they would agree to give the commission for this sale of, for 11, it's $11 billion that they would give the commission potentially to Trump and his associates if he would, in fact, get elected and were to remove the sanctions against Russia. And the person who was in those meetings was Carter Page. This is how Carter Page got wired up for the investigation to try to figure out what he was doing over there. But the fact of the matter is nobody wants to talk about this because what this is is a clumsy effort on the part of Trump to carry out what he knows secretly was the mission of George Bush Sr., was to figure out how to establish this alliance with Russia and have control of the resources. What gives this away, to some extent, is the fact that on April 27th of 2016, during the early spring of the election, that the first foreign policy speech that Trump was going to be delivering was scheduled for the 27th of April of 2016 at the National Press Club. Suddenly, with no explanation, on the 25th of April, the venue was changed over to over to the uh, the uh, a major hotel in Washington D.C., which is with the Mayflower Hotel, which is leased by the Center for the National Security. The Center for the National Security is a private organization, the chairman of whom is Henry Kissinger. Uh, and uh, on the board of which is Jeff Sessions, and on the board of which is uh, Pete, uh, Pete Peters, uh, who is, in fact, a partner in Blackstone Investments, along with Stephen Schwartz, uh, uh, Schwartzmore, uh, who, who was, in fact, a major financial advisor for Donald Trump. And that they had at this, at this speech in the Mayflower Hotel, it was preceded by a private VIP cocktail, party, which 24 men were invited to. All of these people were involved in the sale of the 19.5% interest in Rosneft. Okay? And that that uh, this is something that isn't being investigated, but what happened, one of the people that was there was, was in fact, uh, Bud McFarland. The same person who, in fact, told David Durenberger that there was nothing to any of the charges that the Christic Institute was making about the off-the-shelf enterprise. And Bud McFarlane was in the meeting, and Bud McFarlane wrote an article for The National Interest, which is the, the magazine of the Center for the National Interest. And that was published in June. This was on April 27th, the meeting was. One month later, basically in June, an article is published in The National Interest by Bud McFarlane, 
calling for the United States and Russia to become intimate partners in protecting the security of the energy resources for Western civilization. Okay? And that harkens back to, to, Samuel, to Samuel Huntington. And Samuel P. Huntington is the man who was the president of the American Association of Political Science, was the Oland Professor of International Relations at Harvard University, and was on the board of directors of the Foreign Affairs magazine. And he published in 1992 an article in Foreign Affairs magazine published by the Council on Foreign Relations uh, called The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of World Order. He called for all of the Caucasian allied nations to come together, including Russia, and to stand against the rise of the new Asian empire and called for them to get rid of all of all of this multiculturalism, uh, stop all this allowing of, of foreign people coming into our country and to reestablish the old values of white male Caucasian uh, leadership. And he said, and to to reestablish Judeo-Christian principles and to stop all of these other things going on in the country and to ultimately get back to uh, not only uh, Judeo-Christian values, but Catholic values, he said. He says it. Now, I would recommend for a little assigned reading out of this thing, because we're almost over now, uh, is get a copy. Get a copy of uh, Samuel P. Huntington's The Clash of Civilization. Steal it if you can. You don't want to give him the money. Uh, but, uh, but, or have your friends copy it for you. Uh, but it's called The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of World Order. And you'll see it right in front of you. Okay? And what's happening is Trump is trying to mimic this. But he, you know, I mean, he, we don't have to go into great length about, you know, what his capabilities are. But he's, he's kind of a, 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 an untutored uh, reductionist, let's say. Uh, and he just reduces it to the simplest equations. Well, I'm supposed to get along with, with Putin. You know, we're supposed to be having our oil deals together. You know, why can't we all make a little money on this? And that's why he has Rex Tillerson. Uh, the CEO of uh, ExxonMobil, who in fact had set up the contract in 2014 with the Russian oil company to develop the Arctic Shelf. That's what it was, a $500 billion project. That the, and, and Putin gave him the award of friendship, a Russian friendship. Okay, and so Trump says, well, good, why don't I make him the Secretary of State? Okay, and why don't I have as our Secretary of Energy Rick Perry? I mean, from Texas. After all, it's a big oil state. And after all, Rick Perry and I are both partners in Energy Transfer Partners. Energy Transfer Partners is the company that was building the Dakota Access Pipeline. And the Dakota Access Pipeline is the one that's building it all the way from the fields of, of North Dakota all the way down through the United States, all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico to ship it out to sell it abroad. Not, not a single drop for anybody in the United States. Not having anything to do with any kind of energy, domestic energy crisis. It's just to sell it all on the market to make us the dominant energy transporter in the whole world. Okay? And that's why at our Romero Institute now, we're focused on this issue. Because the, the Achilles heel of these people is global climate change. 
Because they have come to be completely dependent, these people, on petroleum as a source of their power. It's the, it's the base of the petrodollar. It is the source of all of their engines, all of their jet engines, all of their cargo planes, all of their tanks, all of their, uh, their vehicles. Uh, they all work on oil. And so that they want to have control over all the oil of the world. Uh, and the fact of the matter is they're not upset about global climate change because it's thawing the ice caps and it makes it easier to develop the oil. And, and, and in fact, they say so. Okay. So that, that this, this is the Achilles heel of these rise of the robber barons once again. Uh, and they've gone to the same lengths. They've now got their, they're starting to appoint their corporate lawyers to all the courts again. Uh, the courts again have now once again, second time in history, have declared that corporations are people. Once again, this is not the first time. It was done before. It was done before. And it was the big battle that, that Franklin Roosevelt had with the major industrialists back in 1934. Every time he tried to regulate the corporations in the, in the aftermath of the Great Depression, they would argue that it was violating their fundamental rights. It was violating our fundamental rights to contract, violating our fundamental rights to freedom and, and, uh, uh, and freedom of speech. We can say anything we want in advertising, you know, and, and, and Franklin Roosevelt confronted them by threatening to pack the court, uh, and they backed off. But now they've come back again. What I'm saying is this is a resurgence of the robber barons. And you look back to the robber baron era and you will see exactly what it is that's going on. And that is why, that is why Donald Trump is the epitome of these people. He just doesn't, he isn't subtle about it at all. You know, he just goes right straight forward and, and says exactly what he thinks they think. Okay. And so the, what we're in the process of doing now at the Romero Institute is uh, we are uh, engaged in a major thing called the Green Power Project. We have been working now for a number of years in helping to establish community choice energy companies. This is a new economic model. This is the same kind of thing that Pope Francis has called for in his major papal encyclical on global climate change. Uh, he has said we need to have a new economic order. Uh, if, if in fact you have things that are necessities like energy and power and lights and other things, uh, you cannot have private for-profit corporations doing that because they will inevitably uh, destroy the world. They will reap, they will rape and pillage the natural resources, uh, until, until they're, until our planet is dead. You know, we have to have some other form of, of economic development. And so that these, these community choice energy companies, now, the minute that a, that a, uh, a company is set up, this is what we, we need to have now. Okay? And so we're also drafting the Green New Deal which is a, a statute that is going to be comprehensive to lay out exactly the steps that are needed to shift over to a green economy, how we can, in fact, establish an alternative source of energy, and there can be major jobs that are available, uh, a, a new economic stimulation. Uh, none of these, these challenges are true. There's going to be this horrible economic slowdown if, in fact, we try to shift over to alternative energy. None of that is true. Uh, but we have to demonstrate this. We have to have a lot more than just a nine-page memo you know, that they have now that uh, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey have put in you know, H.R. 109, which is a, a nine-page bill setting forth principles. We need to have a detailed bill. So we have a 200 150-page bill of the Green New Deal 
That's what we were in Washington, D.C., meeting with all the heads of the major religious denominations and uh, a lot of the environmental groups to get everybody on board this so that we can establish it as a detailed template, show how the monies are going to be raised, how this can generate more money, more taxes, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and, of course, we're uh, dealing also with the fact that the Keystone XL pipeline is uh, now fully uh, getting ready to go underway, and there's going to be a major uh, challenge to this on the part of the indigenous people up in the Dakotas because this is going to come right straight through Lakota territory, and now all nine of the reservations in South Dakota are starting to mobilize to oppose this. Uh, we are working with them. We were instrumental in the, the major defense in the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline for Chase Iron Eyes. Uh, got all the charges dismissed against uh, those. So there has to be a stand that people are taking. People are all wringing their hands of wondering what we're going to do about this guy. You know, the fact of the matter is we have to have a positive program. It, it, we have to have a lot more than just saying how terrible he is. We have to get rid of him. We've got to have a concrete, positive program about how to deal with global climate change. This global climate change is coming on like a, like a train here. You know, I mean, we've got California, you know, burning down entire sections of California every summer, these tornado fires going on. We've got literal tornadoes, 500 tornadoes in May uh, alone. Back in the Midwest, we got both the Mississippi and Missouri River overflowing and flooding out, you know, uh, 85% of all the counties in Nebraska uh, in the reservations. And we've got an administration in power right now that is not only denying the existence of global climate change, but doing everything in the world they can do to block any attempts to address it whatsoever in, in expunging from all the records any reference to global climate change, literally going in and removing language from statutes and everything that talk about this. So, so we've got to, we've got to move on this and, uh, the, the basic question that confronts most everybody is, uh, you know, is there going to be a challenge to uh, to Trump from inside the party? Uh, I think there's going to be a lot more than Walsh, Welch running against him out of Massachusetts. I think Kadish is I think John Kadish is almost certainly going to run uh, to try to give the Republicans some option uh, to him. Kasich. Yeah. Yeah. From Ohio. Uh, uh, and, uh, and so that, that's, and, and I think he's going to, I think he's going to reach out to what's her head to be his vice president, presidential candidate, the, the lady from, uh, South Carolina that was the UN ambassador. Haley, yeah, Haley. Yeah. Uh, and, and Nikki Haley. And so I think Trump is going to try to head that off by trying to get her to possibly come in and be his vice president, uh, in his run. Watch it happen. I mean, just watch it happen because because uh, uh, Kasich and, and Haley uh, could run against him and inside the party and really do some substantial damage. Uh, and I think, you know, obviously the entire uh, Democratic Party apparat is, is going to be supporting Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden almost certainly is going to ask Kamala Harris to be his VP. So he can say, you know, basically, you're going to have a woman president here just after probably one term of, of him being in office. Let's get back to normal. Let's get back to normal. Let's not take the risk of doing any of this kind of pie-in-the-sky social democratic stuff. Uh, you know, let's make sure we beat this guy. So let's let's go along with the new, more moderate Democratic Party, because in the same way that the Republican Party has regrouped all the way back into being a reactionary reinstitution of the robber barons, 
that the Democratic Party at the end of the Cold War has slid all the way to the right of center, and they are now the new, more moderate Democratic Party. This is the party of the Democratic Leadership Conference of Richard Gebhardt, you know, and, and Bill Clinton, and uh, Hillary was the head of the policy committee for them. This is a much more moderate Democratic Party. They don't even support Franklin Roosevelt's policies. So that what we see here is that there's an effort to reestablish some of the spirit of the Roosevelt New Deal in the Green New Deal under the rubric of of the uh, of the global climate change. So that's that's what uh, we're doing at our office now. Uh, we wanted to come and share some of that with you. Uh, this is where it's led to. We've got 50 years in uh, in these kind of uh, challenges and contests, and it all now resolves around the Green New Deal and whether or not this is going to be able to lead into to a major progressive era in response to our having discovered how bad it could possibly get. Okay. Thank you. Maybe the best way to get the plan in is to uh, write a 47-volume detailed plan for it, hide it, and then leak it to the media, and then... Then maybe they'll say something about it. Maybe they'll get it. Yeah, right. Um, I worked on the the, uh, Yuko Sibnev merger um, in 2003 in in Russia Ah. uh, for a $13 billion deal for that. And then it was completely taken apart by Putin afterwards. He ignored it, and then he gave it to Rosneft. Yes. Yes. So all part of a big plan. Yep. Anyway, very, very interesting. Thank you very much for coming. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion. Well, thank you. Thank you.